All right, I'm going to start with a confession. I am not a Sherlock Holmes. In fact, I tell Carla, my wife, I am an anti-Sherlock Holmes because in our household, she is the Sherlock Holmes. By that, I mean that she notices little things, and I'm talking everyday life, right, not criminal investigation stuff. So I'm the stereotypical guy who doesn't notice. So I'm the guy who comes home, Carla has, let's say, a new decorative item up on one of the walls of our bathroom, and four hours later, she's saying, well, what'd you think? And I'm the guy who says, think about what? Um, how the house looks now? What's different about it? I don't know what you're talking about. So Carla has to literally take me by the arm, take me into the bathroom, put me in front of the wall, and I'll go, oh, that, that looks really nice. You're right, I didn't notice. Or she could get her hair done a little bit differently, and I would not notice uh, for hours and hours. But texts, as in the Bible, are very different. And I'm not sure why. Part of it might be that God's Holy Spirit is there to help us see things and notice and observe and draw conclusions. I think some of it is that I'm looking at a paragraph or a chapter or a few verses, just like Carla taking me into the bathroom and saying, okay, Ron, focus. Here's the only thing you've got to look at, this wall. Or look at my face, look at my head. Just stare at that for a few seconds and maybe you'll notice what's different. Uh, we're on page seven of the notes. I'm going to start with a quote from uh, Piper, which is so good. And here it is. We must relentlessly query the text. Asking questions is the key to understanding. Insight or understanding is the product of intensive, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of his next word here, <laughs> headache-producing meditation on two or three propositions and how they fit together. This kind of reflection and rumination is provoked by asking questions of the text, and you cannot do it if you hurry. Therefore, we must resist the deceptive urge to carve notches in our bibliographic gun. Love that wording. Take two hours to ask 10 questions of Galatians 2.20, and you will gain 100 times the insight you would have attained by quickly reading 30 pages of the New Testament or any other book. Query, ponder, chew. <clears throat> so, our lesson is all about asking questions. It's not going to be a real intense lesson. It's going to be a little bit of a breather for you guys between the book endings of Ryan talking about topics in Philippians as a sample book. Remember how he talked about once we make a list of those topics, themes, ideas, we try to see how they fit together. So on my paper I wrote, because uh, he connected two or three of these at one point, I wrote their concern for Paul, then I wrote an arrow to the right, the spread of the gospel, and then I wrote an arrow joy. Joy was a result, it was a fruit, a product of that spread of the gospel. So Ryan is doing that on kind of a bigger level Trent, in Lesson 3, will do that on a small level with phrases and sentences and show you how those relate to one another. This is a bit of a breather in between those two. So second section in your notes, what comes first, micro or macro? And by that I mean, do we ask 
big questions, as in questions about the whole book of Philippians, like what is the theme or what is the melodic line, or do we ask small questions on the level of the word or a phrase or a sentence, like what does the word redemption mean in this particular verse? Does it mean forgiveness of sins? Does it mean conversion? Or does, is God redeeming someone else from something else? And most of these questions will be rhetorical. You can just kind of sit and don't worry about raising your hand, although I'll hit a few where, where I want you to answer. For now, I'm going to answer these for you. Think about when you meet a new person and you're trying to get to know them. Do you ask macro questions or micro questions? And do you make observations on the macro level or the micro level? I think the answer is yes, meaning you do them both. So let's say you meet me and I'm dressed like I am now. And it's the first time we've met and we're starting to talk. I'll just make this up. Maybe you have completely different observations or, or completely different thoughts. But you might think, okay, it's Saturday. We're not in a workplace. And he's dressed in slacks dress shoes, no tennis shoes or sandals, and a button-down, long-sleeve dress shirt. And he's kind of clean-cut. And he's not got scruffy growth all over his face, something like that. So that's more on the macro level, right? You're trying to think, I wonder, maybe this guy is white-collar, not blue-collar. And I'm guessing he's employed, not unemployed. That's kind of on a bigger level. And then as you're talking with me, you notice there's a tattoo on the back of my left hand. So that prompts a question, or maybe three or four questions. So maybe your questions are, what is the, the big one is, what is the tattoo there for? Sub-questions, huh, I wonder if this is a result of some midlife crisis or maybe even younger days, like he had that happen in college and he regrets it now. Or is it something else? Does it have a lot of meaning to him right now? Is it something that is part of a, well, you wouldn't know that, you wouldn't think Bible verse because you don't know I'm a Christian yet. But we do that when we meet people, right? We think big issues and we think very small, specific issues. We do them both. Um, when we meet a person, we have a list of questions and we don't have a list of questions. Meaning, part of what we do, I think, is systematic and part is organic or informal. We do the same thing with the text, by the way. That's the point I'm going to get to, right? You're going to guess that. When you come across a text in the Bible, you're probably going to have two or three set questions. And then the text is going to offer you some other questions you've not even thought of. So let's say I meet a person for the first time at a Starbucks and we start a conversation. What are some of my set questions that I kind of ask everyone that I meet for the first time? What's your name? What's your job or occupation? Are you from Albuquerque? I've got a set list of questions. You do too. But then there's an organic or informal number of questions that come up that you've not prepared at all based on what you see and as you talk, what you hear. So for me, if a person is at Starbucks and they have some kind of book in their hand, like a novel, I'll ask them about the book. I'll say, do you like reading? Because I love reading. I noticed you're reading a novel. Do you like that author? Now, that's not in my set list of questions, right? Because if they didn't have the book, I'm not going to ask it. So, again, we do a both and. We ask big and small questions, 
and we have some set questions that we have prepared when we meet people, and we have some that come up that are not prepared. Most of what we do in the Bible is on the micro level, and the same is true in conversations. Uh, most of what you do when you observe and ask questions as you play the Sherlock Holmes role is on that micro level. Uh, so let me talk about what that is. We call that inductive reasoning or questioning. It's very common, both in relationships and in Bible study. It moves from particular to general. You make particular or specific observations, and those lead to conclusions. Third bullet point, we often revise those conclusions so it's fine to hold them loosely. This is exactly what Ryan was talking about when he mentioned topics, themes, melodic lines, and he said, I've noticed some things that I, I didn't notice the first one or even two times that I preached through the book. Now, do you think those latter observations are contradicting the former ones? Do you think he's looking back and saying, wow, I really regret that when I preached that in Denver at my first church, it was heretical. Of course not. He's adding to those original conclusions and revising them. So some things in scripture, we can see right away what God is saying. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Maybe I'll ask one question about that and it'll last all of 30 seconds. Does he really mean that? Is, is his way exclusive and the only way to the Father? Well, I think it is. Because he's following up that first statement, I am the way, which seems pretty exclusive with the T-H-E in there, with that second line, no man comes to the Father but my me. So after 30 seconds, I'm going to say, yep, I think he really does mean that. Other questions and answers take hours. Things like melodic line. So with melodic line, it's okay to hold these loosely. And this happens in research all the time. So let's say that you examine 10 dogs in your neighborhood with a microscope for fleas. And they all, all 10 of them have fleas. Well, that's particular, specific questioning you're doing. What if you make the conclusion, all dogs have fleas? That may or may not be true, right? You're not quite sure because you've only looked at 10. But that's a good working generalization or summary. You're just going to test it out further. So maybe you look at other dogs elsewhere that don't have fleas and you say, I'm going to go back and revise that. Uh, or maybe even your neighborhood, you say, most dogs in my neighborhood have fleas. Or maybe they all have, maybe you've got a flea infestation in your neighborhood. And maybe you'll revise it by geography. All dogs in my neighborhood have fleas. But dogs elsewhere may or may not have fleas. So this is the kind of thing we do with topics and themes in the Bible. Uh, or on that interpersonal level, how do we do this inductive stuff, these specific questions? Well, let's say I meet my daughter for lunch and her eyes are a little teary. Now, I'm making a specific observation that's going to lead to a specific question. The question is going to have a conclusion behind it. Danielle, why are you so sad today? Oh, Dad, I'm not sad. Uh, I've got a little eye infection and they're tearing up the past couple days and I've taken some eye drops and some medicine and some antibiotics for it. Oh, okay. I'm making the wrong conclusion based on one specific thing, but I'm asking questions and I'm revising what I'm doing. 
So another way of wording inductive questions is that you're looking for a pattern or a trend, you're making a summary statement about it, and then you're testing it. Does this continue? So summary of second part is this. We ask macro questions and we ask micro questions and each feeds off the other. So if we were to ask which comes first, do we ask the specific questions, like what does this word mean? Or do we ask the big questions, like what is the theme of Habakkuk? And the answer is yes, you do them both. They feed off each other, and every time you read Habakkuk or Philippians, you're answering a little bit more about each one of those. So let me do quick, two quick examples here. Let's say that you already know let me exaggerate Habakkuk a little bit. Let's pretend that Habakkuk, when that prophet mentions deliverance, salvation, or life, he's always talking not about spiritual conversion, but physical life and salvation. Because the Babylonians are about to invade Israel. So we're going to pretend Habakkuk always means physical life by deliverance. You won't die. And on top of that, not only will individual Israelites live, but God will preserve a remnant that will physically live and have children who will have children. So God is telling Habakkuk, or Israel through Habakkuk, Israel will not be extinguished. Let's just pretend that for a minute. Uh, and you've, you're basing that on the first two chapters. When you hit the third chapter and you hit the word life or salvation, you're using that macro level to interpret that word salvation or life in chapter 3. As long as you're open to the fact that Habakkuk might be changing gears, right? So maybe in the first two chapters he means physical life and in chapter 3 he's going to say, in contrast, God also does spiritual things in your life. And he saves you spiritually as well and here's how. But then you look for that contrasting kind of language. So that would be an example of I've answered a macro question, it's going to influence when I come across the word salvation in Habakkuk in chapter 3. Let's flip it. Especially if you're reading Habakkuk for the first time, when you come across salvation in any chapter, you might ask the question, what does he mean? Does he mean deliverance from sins and right standing with God? Or does he mean something else? That's a specific question, a micro question about a text. So let's do a sample text here in Philippians. And we're going to do, so pull out your sheet, chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Now I'm going to do this for you, and then we're going to look at a second section in Philippians. And I'll ask you only to ask questions, not answer them. That's all you have to do in this second passage we'd look at, not Philippians 1. All you have to do is raise your hand and say, here's a question about those verses, or a word in those verses. Piece of cake, right? Because all you're doing is making a list, coming up with a pool of questions, not answering them. So let me read the first few verses. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just in those two verses, that greeting or that opening, I'm thinking of a few questions that come to mind. Uh, 
And you might be thinking of different questions, which is fine. There might be 10 or 20 or 30 questions about these first couple verses. When I look at grace and peace, I say, oh, those are two words there in a greeting. Is there a reason for those two words instead of one or zero? Is there any meaning behind those words? Uh, I see Christ Jesus twice. I'm seeing this right now. Instead of Jesus Christ, I see Christ Jesus. Is there a reason he inverted that and put the title first and the proper name second? We see Paul and Timothy at the start. So I'm wondering, how many letters does Paul say were written by him and someone else? Because Paul's telling us at the start, this is not just me writing to you. There are two of us, there's a team that's doing this. So that prompts a question right away. And then I see that phrase, overseers and deacons, which reminds me of another question I ask at Paul's letters at the beginning, and it's this. How is this opening, if it is, any different than the openings of other letters of Paul? And that doesn't take a whole lot of time to answer, because as Greetings are usually just one or two or three verses. And then there's a prayer that's usually much longer than one or two verses. So let's just, let's answer that. Let's pick one question and answer it. Is there something different about this? And let's focus on overseers and deacons. In other openings, does he mention other officers of the church in his greeting? So somebody just yelled this out. What book is immediately before Philippians? Don't look down at your Bible. What's the book immediately before this? Ephesians. Ephesians. What's before that? Galatians. What's before that? Second Corinthians. So, Josiah, why don't you take Second Corinthians? Brian, you take Galatians, and Ava, you take Ephesians. And all I want you to do is to read out loud the greeting, which should just be one or two verses. I'll stop you if you go too far. So, which book are you doing? So, 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Cape Achaia. Um, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, I'll stop there. I heard Paul and Timothy. So, I did hear of Paul and Timothy in 2 Corinthians. But when he wrote to the church, I only heard the word saints. Was that pretty much all there was? Yeah. Alright, there's a bunch more that Josiah read, like the grace and peace part, but I'm only asking the question about spiritual officers of the church now. Who is he writing to? Is it saints and others, or is it just saints or church? So, I can't remember which one you've got, Brian. I have Galatians. Okay, read that. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, good. I heard that grace and peace again. So that's kind of getting me a little off track now, and this happens all the time, like you know. Now I kind of want to investigate that, but okay, I'm going to say no to that for a minute, because I heard churches of Galatia. So I heard saints, churches of Galatia, one more opening. Oh! <laughs> Why don't you read it in Spanish? I think that'd be fantastic. And then you can tell us that don't know Spanish if it's just churches, saints, or something more. So go for it. Pablo, apóstol de Cristo Jesús, por la voluntad de Dios, a 
a los santos que están en Éfeso y que son fieles en Cristo Jesús. Gracias a vosotros y paz de parte de Dios nuestro Padre y del Señor Jesucristo. All right, at the end I heard Jesus Christ. So there it wasn't Christ Jesus, it was Jesus Christ, but again, I don't want to get off track. So who was it written to? To the saints in Ephesus. To the saints in Ephesus. Now, I could expand that, right, to all of Paul's openings. But so far, our little sampling has, has come up with saints, churches, and saints. So, so far, this is unique in that Paul is including uh, the elders and the deacons in his greeting. So let's just stop there. But I've already got, and we've only spent, what, two or three minutes on this in answer to one of my questions. Is there something unique about the opening to Philippians, and if so, what? One of my answers is, I think, it's my working hypothesis here, it might be proven wrong if the next five Pauline letters all have elders and deacons, but I think that this is unique about Philippians, that he's addressing the elders and deacons, not just the church. And I'm wondering, because I've done a little work on the macro level, because we did that the last hour, if that might tie into this theme of partnership and working together. I think it, it kind of could, because Paul's going to talk about co-laboring, not just among leaders, but among everyone, on both levels in a church. All right, let's read on. And... For the sake of time, I'm going to give you a question I've got about verses 3 through 11. So we're going to fast forward. I've read through 3 through 11, looked at it, I've read it a second time, I've looked at it a second time, I've read it a third time, I've looked at it a third time. I'm looking at this for a good 20 minutes, and I'm writing down questions. Here's one of my questions. I see in verse 5 the word partnership. And I see in verse 7, kind of halfway through the verse, I see the word partakers. Those sound to me like synonyms, words that are very close in meaning. They're not exactly the same word in English, but they're very close in what they talk about. And I've done a little work on the macro level that tells me one theme, maybe it's not the dominant one, but one theme or idea or topic in Philippians is this working together, co-laboring, putting others before yourself for the sake of the gospel. So one of my questions might be that word partnership in verse 5, I wonder if that occurs elsewhere in Philippians. And here's where we will go to a tool called Blue Letter Bible. It's in Ryan's list of tools to test that out. Uh, why? Because I'm going to do a shortcut here. I could do the long road and read through the whole book of Philippians and be very careful to make sure I circled every time the word partnership occurred, but I'd rather do it a little faster than that. Also, sometimes English translations are not 100% accurate in what they translate. So... Maybe a different word is used other than partnership, but the same Greek word is there. Even if I don't know Greek, I'm going to show you how you can access a tool that accesses Greek and tells you how often that same word occurs. So, we were in verse 5. 
when you open up Blue Letter Bible, blueletterbible.org, uh, you can type in, where do you want to go? Type in Philippians, you'll get this page. I think it defaults to King James and it might not give you another option. So, no problem though, because what I'm going to do now is concordance work. That C stands for concordance, and that is 98% of the time when I go to Blue Letter Bible, what I click on. So, Here's our word partnership in verse 5. I'm going to click on the C, which brings up an interlinear online. An interlinear is the Greek spelled out, word by word, an English word put next to it, and then some other tools. So I realize it's not going to be real visible to all of you, but go home and try this. It's part of the purpose for doing this. So... Uh, here's my word. They're calling it participation. It's in the third row down. If you go home and click on that C for concordance. They're giving me a number, 1519, which is a Strong's number, kind of the standard concordance in English. Then I've got the Greek spelled out. And next to that, to the right, in case you don't read Greek or have problems with some of the letters, some are the same as we have in English, some are different. They give you, using all English letters, how that word sounds. So I don't know Greek, so I'm going to skip that and go to their little English help, and I see the word koinonia. If you've been around church or Bible study long enough, that'll sound kind of familiar as the word for fellowship. You may have heard somebody preach or write about it before. So, okay, that's the word koinonia. Now, my question is, does that occur elsewhere in Philippians? So I'm going to click on the Strong's number. So I've clicked on C. I think with one more click, I'm going to get an answer to my question. That doesn't take that long. So Koinonia 2842. And here we've got Koinonia at the top some dictionary-type paragraphs under that. If I look at this blue bar here, I'm going to see total times it occurs in the New Testament, 20 times. That's kind of helpful. I thought it might be one or 200 times, but it's only 20 times. By the way, quick question, give me a yes or no, so answer this one. Does that mean that the New Testament doesn't talk about fellowship that much or partnership because koinonia only occurs 20 times? What do you think? Yes or no? I think the answer is no. Um, specifically because authors can use words other than koinonia to talk about fellowship, right? Imagine a verb like laboring added with the word like together. Well, that's not using fellowship or partnership. But that's certainly the same thing. So resist that temptation to say, oh, the Testament doesn't have that much about fellowship. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. All you know is that koinonia occurs 20 times. Now, if I scroll down more, I can look at every verse in which koinonia occurs. And the part that I really like, and here's going to be the answer to my question. Off to the right kind of small, so you might miss it. Probably the most important part of this page I use. You will see the search results and how often the word occurs 
in the books of the New Testament. So I'll read it for you because it's too small for you to see where you're sitting. In Acts, it's got parentheses 1, meaning koinonia occurs one time in Acts. In Galatians, 1. 1 John, 3. Romans, 1. Philippians, 3. Second uh, Corinthians, 4. So not all that common. Three times in Philippians. My first thought is, oh, it's not that much in Philippians because it's only three times. I was hoping it would be 5, 6, 10, 20. But then if I'm looking at this cell in this chart and I'm noticing that Romans only once, Acts only once, a lot of books zero, I'm going to start revising that. Three doesn't look so bad now. Three's pretty, pretty good cluster for a word like this. In fact, it's only three times in our book and 1 John. If you've read 1 John, it kind of makes sense because one of those evidences of being a believer is loving the brethren and getting together with other people, fellowshipping. And if you know anything about 2 Corinthians, it kind of makes sense that it would be four times there. So that gets me thinking, wow, if I were doing a study on fellowship or partnership, maybe those would be three key books, at least based on this word, to look at. So I end up looking at that saying, three is pretty significant here. And if I click on that three, it'll actually take me to all three in Philippians. So I can, within seconds, know where else koinonia occurs in Philippians without the longer task of reading through the whole book and hoping that my English translation uses partnership for all three of those instances. All right, so done with our sample text. Uh, let's do one more sample. And this I'm going to read and then ask you to ask questions. And that's all we're doing, collecting some questions, not answering them. So our second sample is chapter 2 of Philippians. I'll start at verse 19. I'll read through verse 30. You be thinking of questions you can vocalize when I'm done. Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, your turn. So give me some questions about that passage. I'm not asking for the most important question. We're just asking for questions. We're just making a list. Last one. 
Why was Paul anxious? That's a good question. In fact, if I remember elsewhere in Philippians, he says, don't be anxious. So here Paul is anxious. That makes me want to get out. I don't know the answer to that. That makes me want to get out Blue Letter Bible to see if it's the same word. And if it is, there must be a sense in which we can be anxious in a godly, healthy way and a sense in which it's very ungodly and unhealthy. That, that like leads to two or three more questions. So, great question. Another one. How is Timothy proving his work? Hang on a second, Patrice. I should give you guys names. Go ahead. Um, how did, while well, they clearly didn't serve Paul well, like Timothy, um, so I guess they didn't serve him well, and how did they serve him well? Right. I mean, until he, was almost, he died almost, you know, serving him. So, in some ways, it's yeah. In the last hour, we saw it's an encouraging letter, a lot of good flowery language, maybe not 100%, because there's something they did that was lacking for Paul. So, a great question. Can we figure out what that is? So, Josiah? I was saying, um, how did Timothy prove his worth? What, what did Timothy do? It says that um, for you know Timothy's proven um, his proven work. What, what was his proven work? Nice. Great question. What was Timothy's proven worth? And having two books written from Paul to Timothy, we think there's some good source for getting an answer to that. We know a pretty good amount about Timothy. All right, another question. Jada? He's waiting to see how it will go with him. How does it go with Paul? Uh, maybe I divide it then into two. What context is Paul writing from now? We answered that a little bit in the last hour. And what happened after that? What did happen after this letter was written? What did? Yeah. Good. We're not going to answer these, though, but great. <laughs> it sounded like I was asking for that. So, another question. Bill? Who was it that is seeking their own interest? Yeah, great question. Is that the whole church? Doesn't sound like it when he's commending them elsewhere. Is it a subset within the church? Who, who is it that is seeking his or her own interest or what group is seeking their own interest? Gayla? What do you would be Good question. What news would be cheering to him about that? Here's what I add. He calls Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Do you see that threefold repetition of a title? So I'm thinking, why does he say something three times that he could say once? Why doesn't he just say, he's my fellow minister? There's got to be something emphatic there. Uh, and maybe he's trying to hold Epaphroditus up as a model for them to follow. Maybe he's doing the same thing with Timothy. Maybe he's doing the same thing with Christ earlier in chapter 2 when he talks about how Jesus didn't put his own interests first. So a lot of great questions in this. Let me wrap up this session. Again, this is our little breather session. Uh, We've got some more intense work coming up uh, where Trent's going to lead us through phrases and sentences uh, and give us some tools. It'll be a bare-bones introduction to this kind of micro level and how you go from the micro to the macro. How you can see themes and topics come together when you're looking at sentences. 
quick word of recommendation for ladies, so maybe for your husbands, um, tell your wives, head to this. Uh, but women's study in January is going to do really what we're doing the whole morning today with the book of Titus. So women's study, the Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning thing, is going to take a break from video and discussion groups and do this kind of investigative micro and macro work in the book of Titus. So if this kind of whets your appetite for a little more, many of you do this in your own Bible study already, but if you want to learn more about principles and tools and you're female and gender, not male, then sign up for the women's study in January. Let me pray. We're going to take another break, make this a little less, so refill your coffee just a little bit, but try to head back here in about five minutes and Trent will get underway. Father, thank you for making this exciting. For as you inspired people like Paul, putting interesting things into your revelation to us. And I pray that you'd help us grow in learning how to ask and answer questions, because that is how we listen to your voice to us. In Jesus' name, help us, and help us through this morning. Amen.